millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, September the 22nd. First, I'll be talking to Ivan Kurik, Head of Commercial Developers and Agency, Domain Group. And I'll be talking to Indeed Economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures, but first, let's talk to Ivan Kurik. Well, Ivan, your skills are in broadcasting, media, and CRM. How does that work in with Domain? Thanks, Leon. Uh, I think uh, the fundamentals are, are pretty much the same. Um, you've got audiences that advertisers and brands really want to put their products and services in front of in media, so whether it's TV, radio, or digital. And then in, in Domain's case, um, in my sense, in my part of the business, which is CRE and, and devs, is similar thing. We've got fantastic audiences, engaged audiences across our products and brands, and agents want to access those audiences to sell and to lease um, you know, their, their listing. So, so I think the fundamentals are very much the same. Um, obviously, the nuances around just the, the sector of, of, of real estate versus media are different. And I've um, been getting up to speed as quickly as I can on that. But I think principally, you know, they're very similar in terms of what they're trying to achieve. How is that helping in building the business of domain? Look, I think it's it's good for me that's bringing a different perspective. I'm just looking at the way we talk to agents and developers and project marketers around how we can articulate the benefits of our audiences and brands and, and probably take a different perspective in terms of what our go-to-market strategy is and how we're positioning ourselves in, you know, in the marketplace. So from my perspective, it's um, it's been good and refreshing. And I think I've sort of brought a little bit more of a different sort of view in terms of how those things can be done very much about building the online presence of domain oh look you know we're we're a digital business we've gone from a classified business in the fairfax days and you know we are a fully fledged um, digital business and with our marketplace strategy so yeah absolutely and you know we we see people engaging with our products and services in that fashion um, more and more so no i think i think that's that that's 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 fully fledged that's very interesting. I mean, as to how you work with people buying property and investing in property, but how does that fit in with you working with agents? 
Well, I think it. I, I think it's it's inevitable. Like we we work with agents fantastically well. They understand how consumers and potential buyers want to look and 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 review property or or you know engage with certain property. So um, you know they're they're very they fully understand their buyers far far more than us sometimes. So no, I think I think agents now are very much moving towards um, SaaS products to help with their sort of uh, purchase funnels and how they actually do that sort of sales cycle with their potential buyers. So um, they're very averse to it, uh, really, really, especially on my side of the business, you know, commercial and developers. I mean, it's, it's really part of their um, sales and, 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 and marketing mix. So it'd be very competitive out there for them. Oh, it's absolutely competitive. It's, it, I don't know if I, I mean, it's got to be one of the most competitive sectors out there in terms of agents, you know, making sure they're getting those prime um, real estate uh, contracts and really working hard. So I think two parts of their role is really making sure that they're, they're out there, you know, acquiring that stock and then obviously the other side selling it to potential buyers. So yeah, very competitive. So every single bit of competitive advantage they can get makes a difference for them. This is interesting because, I mean, as a technology specialist, if I can put, if I can put it that way, you'd be right up there with uh, AI, wouldn't you? I think it was just a very broad subject and our, our Chief Revenue Officer, John Fung, he had a, a really interesting talk in Elite Agent in Bali about this. And so I think, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote him, um, but you know, one of the principles is like, I think it's too early to, to tell in terms of how AI will impact you know, most sectors, um, let alone um, the real estate sector. It will impact uh, to what level, you know, it's just hard to tell in these early days. But obviously, you know, we we want to make sure we're at the forefront of, of all those um, capabilities and making sure we can you know get full value out of that. So, but in terms of what that would look like in the future, you know, in the medium to long term, it's very very difficult to 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 predict or forecast. And what about data? Oh, well, I mean, we're a data business, um, so we, we obviously have got data on all of um all 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 of our listings, all of our property. You know, we've got data on um, all of our basically you know, all of our third party data in domain insights. Um, so we're, we're a plethora of data, it's just how we use it. So making sure that we're using it effectively, that really sort of drives you know, positive outcomes for, for agents and making sure we put the right buyers in front of those listings for them. How much of a challenge is that for you? Oh, look, for me, it's um, as a business, it's I think it's it's really challenging because there's so much data out there. So how do you make sure it's meaningful and in a concise sort of clean manner, you know, presenting it. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, absolutely. But it's a challenge for most businesses. I mean, I don't think there's any business out there that doesn't have challenge with how they utilize effectively their data. I would imagine it'd be a challenge for a lot of agents as well. But I think agents um, understand the power of, of, of having really impactful data, making sure that, you know, they're um, using their databases to, to merge with you know, other, other portals and ourselves and other sort of marketing channels to make sure that, you know, that they can qualify those leads and they put those listings and those properties in front of really the right audiences that are going to react or engage with that particular property. So um, absolutely, and you know, they've got their own databases, which they, which they use and really nurture and making sure that, you know, they're utilizing that as a, a part of their media mix. So uh, absolutely, that's critical for them. And I think they use it pretty well. But they would probably be looking to domain for leadership on that, wouldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got over 7 million people coming to the to our, our products and platforms every month. So absolutely, we've got a rich set of data and they use that effectively across a lot of our products, um, lead scope, aim, you know, uh, amongst others. So how are you planning to grow this part of the business? 
My part of the business I'm planning to grow is, is really about three, three core components, is working with our marketing teams to grow audience, especially on, on, on commercial real estate. Um, obviously, developers, we, we're very much focused on the domain platform and that we benefit from that. You know, audience, 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 that's, that's critical. Um, more, audience, more audience that we have, the more inquiries and, more inquiries and leads that we can provide to our agents and developer clients. Secondly, is really to leverage the partnership with Nine in a more meaningful fashion. So how do we actually um, use those assets and, and our assets combined to, to deliver a compelling product to our, um, to our customers? And the third element is really around, as you mentioned before, around the data partnership. So how can we um, really increase that part of our business to, to form data partnerships with agents and, and, and developers? To make sure that we can you know, really tap into both 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 our data and theirs to provide a more compelling proposition to you know to to customers. So, in other words, you you the way you're growing the business is by making sure Domain remains the leader in this area. Look, it's very competitive. You know, there's lots of um, lots of good companies out there and competitors for us, but it's making sure that we, you know we've got a unique audience that that's 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 very very engaged with our products and platforms and uh, we want to make sure that you know we can articulate that to agents and to consumers uh, and really make sure that usps is really clear to those customer sets how do you plan to build your audience well we've got a very very clear marketing strategy and it's and it's and it involves um, really making sure there's lots of brand silence here to get the brand out there across across australia leveraging the partnership with nine to make sure that you know we've got that that good cross collaboration that we can make sure that audiences are tra uh, trading back and forth with um, across nine as well as domain, and then really, um, really making sure that um, once um, audiences come to our site and our platforms, that they're engaged, they they stay there, they're engaged with different products, they're engaged with different services. Really make sure we, we maintain that stickiness. So that means you're always going to have to keep those products and services coming. Well, that's right. Always innovating, always making sure that you know we're not static in terms of what what products we we bring to market. You know, they're they're not easy to do. It's difficult to, to make sure that you've got products that work. Um, so we do a lot of work behind the scenes to make sure that you know, we pick the right ones and invest accordingly. But absolutely, you know, you can't stand still. In other words, uh, that means that that takes up all of your day. Well, my day is sort of um, in threefold is really speaking to customers, spending time with customers, working with our, working with my sales team around, you know, what is the best way we can, you know, obviously usual things deliver on our, on our targets, but also making sure that we're delivering on our strategy, which is, you know, making sure that we're the, the, the trusted partner with it, with the agent community across our sector. Um, so that's definitely um, the, the two areas that I spend a lot of my time. And then obviously internally, you know, with our marketing teams and making sure that, Hey, is it, is, is, is where we are, where we need to be our product teams, um, our insights teams. So making sure that our overall proposition is is really effective um, when we go to market. So, and we can't do that without, um, you know, having that sort of cohesive um, strategy with our business units internally. And, and, a, and it's very top connectedness with your communities. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep, so you've got to be connected. Um, so we do a lot of things with, um, with agents um, you know, across across the business, across um, you know the domain residential side, we do a hell of a lot. But lots of speaking engagements, lots of you know um, insights, sort of presentations. Um, we've got releases of data that we we want to make sure we share with them that we think is relevant and meaningful. So, on, you know, constant communication is critical. 
Well, that's one of the things I've noticed with Domain is you constantly got data coming out every day. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, there's there's plenty more behind the scenes, but um, there is so much. And look, you know, real estate's ubiquitous. Everyone wants to know about real estate. Everyone wants, everyone's always looking to buy. Everyone's looking, you know, uh, looking to buy or wanting to buy um, or will buy in the future or just wanting to, to be a sticky beak and just, just for interest sake. So, and on the sales side as well. So, those articles really resonate and I think, you know, just there's, there's never too much information about real estate. It's it's all consuming. Well, Ivan, that's all fantastic and thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. I appreciate it. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, unemployment's at 3.7%. Uh, what's your take on it? Look, it was a pretty good set of numbers overall and it was a, a really impressive uh, rebound after a very weak uh, July print um, last month. With employment up by about 65,000 people, um, that's a that's a great result at this point in the economic cycle. The unemployment rate stayed at 3.7%, um, and that was mostly based on uh, the participation rate increasing by a little bit, as well as the very strong population growth we, we've had. Um, so that explains why that very strong employment figure wasn't enough to, to bring down the unemployment rate. But overall, when you look at the, the broader picture of employment, unemployment, and the broader labour market, uh, I think you should be pretty happy with it, with how the labour market is tracking. Hours worked, uh, that went uh, down, didn't it? Yeah, if there was a, a point of weakness in the, the overall numbers, it was definitely the, the hours worked. It was down about uh, half a percent in the month. Um, but I think when we look at the, the broader, you know, post-pandemic period, um, I don't think we should be con- too concerned about that because hours worked has pretty consistently outpaced employment growth over the past three years. So we've seen very, very strong employment growth, but we've seen hours actually outpace that, which means that average hours worked across the nation has actually picked up a little bit over the past few years. And that reflects the very strong um, growth in full-time employment that we have seen again over the past few years. Right, okay, okay. And that, that corresponds with the increase in employment. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So the Australian economy is not only creating a lot of jobs, it's also typically creating a lot of, high-quality, full-time, well-paying jobs. And that's precisely what you would expect to see in a, in a pretty solid economy. So the, the fact that the, the economy continues to do that, even though we are obviously in a, in a more challenging um, economic environment, I think is a, a positive um, for the economy overall. Uh, why did the participation rate increase? Well, there's a, there's a few reasons why this could be. We have seen an upward trend in the participation rate throughout the pandemic recovery. Um, There are some structural factors at play that could be contributing to that, including more women entering the workforce. There there is also the possibility, though, that it does reflect the cost of living crisis. That is, participation in the workforce is increasing because people need more work. And so you've got situations where maybe you had a a one-worker household and now you're getting a a two-income household because that that second person has to enter the workforce in order to pay for higher rents, higher mortgage payments, food, electricity, fuel, all those things that have increased significantly over the past couple of years. So there is a probably a, a bit of a positive angle to it, which is the sort of structural demographic shifts across a, a number of years, which could be contributing to it, but also, you know, a much sadder story, which is the the cost of living side of it. Right, okay. So that means uh, more two-income households or people working multiple jobs will have to do that to cover rising rent, mortgage, food and energy prices. 
Yeah, that's right. So the participation rate is part of that story. The people working multiple jobs is another side of that. So what we have seen recently is about 6.7% of Australian workers currently have two or more jobs. That is at a record high. Traditionally, it's averaged between 5 and 6% of employees. So that has been a, a big change which has emerged over the past couple of years. And we do believe that is being driven by uh, this cost of living crisis and the fact that a lot of households out there are doing it tough and need to find a little bit more money to make ends meet. Uh, but some employers are still finding it hard to find the labour they need. Well, that, that's exactly right. So you know, employment gains have been really strong, but there is still a, a high number of job vacancies across the country. And when we look at that, we can see that the demand for labour remains incredibly strong at this point in the economic cycle. The job vacancy rates at about 2.7%. And that's almost twice what was considered normal in the decade before the pandemic. So that gives you a sense of just uh, how out of whack the, the current situation continues to be. The job vacancy rate has come down a little bit over the past six to nine months. But again, it, it's still very elevated by historical standards. And that that should be a good thing for employment, because if uh, if uh, employers are looking for more staff, that means that if you lose your job in the current environment, you should be able to find a new job relatively easy. And that should ensure that we don't see a, a significant spike in the unemployment rate, at least in the near term. Uh, and But that, that issue is uh, coming at a time when migration is, is running high. So employers are still finding it hard to find people. Yes, even with uh, record population growth. There is still an incredible high number of job vacancies across the country. So the high population growth we are seeing is helping to ease some of these talent and skill shortages, but it but certainly hasn't gotten rid of them completely. Um, I talk to a lot of um, businesses and recruiters, and I know that they're saying that recruitment is a little bit easier than it was, but still much more difficult than it was before the pandemic began. So again, population growth eating into these skill shortages, but they still exist in, in much larger numbers than we're accustomed to. What does this mean for the RBA? I mean, the current dynamics are probably odds with the RBA consistently meeting their 2 to 3% target range. Yeah, so that is true. Normally, I mean, if we think about what's required to get the RBA back to 2 to 3% target, uh, it would be surprising if that involved the unemployment rate being at 3.7%. Um, that's well below what the RBA considers to be full employment. They think that the unemployment rate will probably have to drift up towards four and a half percent in order to facilitate uh, inflation getting down to that two to three percent target. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because obviously we're, we're seeing uh, inflation overall start to uh, ease, start to cool, uh, particularly globally, but that's also flowing through to Australia. So it's quite possible that we may get inflation under, say, four percent by year end. But getting from 4% under 3% could prove to be a little bit more challenging because of the very strong labour market and that then flowing through into relatively high wage growth, which obviously then feeds into um, the prices of goods and services. So we would expect the unemployment rate to increase to maybe 4%? My expectation is that the unemployment rate will drift towards 4% by year end. Now, that reflects the more challenging economic environment we do find ourselves in, um, also the very strong population growth. So it's only going to take a, a small change in the rate of employment growth for the unemployment rate to uh, begin to, to increase. Uh, we've seen very strong employment growth over the past year, and it hasn't changed the unemployment rate at all. 
So if we drop even a little bit below that, that very strong rate of employment growth, we are going to see the unemployment rate begin to pick up. And so I think a, um, a shift towards 4% by year end uh, makes sense. And then next year, we're likely to um, drift a little bit higher as, as well. Now, hopefully that will be sufficient in order to help get inflation back down to that 2 to 3% target. Because uh, if it isn't, then we run the risk that the Reserve Bank may have to hike rates again next year after their... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. After the pause that they're currently in. You would expect this pause to continue for the rest of the year? I don't expect the RBA to do anything um, until next year. Now, I don't know whether they'll they'll hike or they'll they'll cut. You know, economic forecasts more than a, a couple of months ahead tend to be pretty inaccurate. But I'd be very surprised if they did anything this year, given what we're seeing with the overall inflation rate. I do think it'll be below 4% by year end. And I think the RBA will be happy with that. And they'll be more than happy to just pause and wait and see how the, the economy continues to evolve and, and sort of the impact of those earlier rate hikes have had, they'll reassess in the new year um, and they'll particularly be looking at things such as service sector inflation, what wages are doing. Do they think that they can consistently get back to that 2 to 3% target under current policy settings? And then they'll adjust policy accordingly. But there are there risks of a wage spillover? Look, it, it's, a, it's always a possibility, uh, particularly given that we are likely to see wage annual wage growth continue to to increase 3.6% at the moment i think at least in the private sector it'll push at to 4% or maybe even slightly above that by year end that is very high wage growth historically and it's not wage growth that is typically consistent with a 2 to 3% inflation target uh, particularly in the current environment where productivity growth has actually been really poor so that that sort of dynamic long term is probably not going to work for the Reserve Bank and, and certainly would make it very difficult for them to consistently achieve their inflation target. But uh, there's little evidence of any wages spillover so far. Look, I think it's still relatively early in, in terms of um, what we are seeing with, with wage growth. It has obviously picked up, but it hasn't been a, a big thorn in the RBA side thus far. Uh, but that could certainly shift next year, particularly as private sector wages head towards 4%. Um, and that becomes a, a bigger factor in, in price changes for, for goods and services. So it'll be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. So where does that leave the RBA next year? I mean, some many economists are predicting the RBA will start cutting rates next year. Do you do you see that happening? Well, like I said, forecasting what the RBA is going to do more than a few months ahead is, is difficult. And a lot of 
a lot of economists out there who are saying that the RBA is going to cut next are saying towards the end of next year. Now, I think a lot can change between now and the end of next year. So I don't want to necessarily say that I'm 100% certain that the RBA is going to cut next year or that's going to be their next move. What I will say is I think on balance, I think a rate cut is more likely than a rate hike as their their next move, uh, purely because the economy does appear to be evolving as the RBA would anticipate. And we are seeing that the impact of those early rate hikes are having their desired impact upon the economy. We're seeing that in the retail sector. Uh, we're seeing that with inflation as, as well. And I think that's likely to, to continue over at least the next six months. I think the economy is likely to continue to slow down and hopefully that will have a big enough impact upon the labour market and inflation so that the RBA doesn't have to hike rates anymore. Uh, but like I said, there's still a scenario out there where the next move could be up, particularly if wage growth continues to, to pick up beyond 4%. Um, and inflation in the service sector remains you know, quite high and doesn't show signs of uh, cooling off. So there is a bit of uncertainty around that. Uh, but I think on balance, a rate cut is probably the next move. Well, indeed. And uh, so that'll be fascinating to watch. And Callum, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the OECD has warned of persistent high consumer prices around the world, including in Australia, strengthening the case for further interest rate rises despite visible effects from previous increases. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, released its interim economic outlook on Tuesday, titled Confronting Inflation and Low Growth. It said that although headline inflation is declining steadily, core inflation remains persistent in many economies and this would require additional policy tightening. In Australia, it estimates core inflation of 5.9% in 2023, up 0.4% from its June estimate, and 3.3% in 2024, up 0.1%. The OECD blamed cost pressures and high margins in some sectors for core inflation, which measures the change in prices of goods and services, excluding items frequently subject to volatile prices like food and energy. And cyber criminals are already using generative artificial intelligence to craft more persuasive scams, but the greater threats that technology poses are still emerging, the country's inaugural cyber coordinator says. By 2030, the global cyber threat environment is going to look very different to how it looks today, Air Marshal Darren Goldie said. AI and quantum computing are coming like a freight train, presenting legislative and security challenges we've seen play out around the world. Should one powerful enough ever be built, a quantum computer could theoretically crack almost all the encryption data that has secured financial and other data systems for decades. But while that threat has yet to be realised, artificial intelligence is already changing the nature of cybercrime. Ben Doyle, the Chief Information Officer at Defence and Transport Manufacturer Thales Group, said cybercriminals are already adopting AI tools such as ChatGBT where they can. When you look at spam and phishing and things like that, the writing style is a lot better because they are all using ChatGPT to write the phishing link. They're not just doing it in English anymore. They're also automatically translating it. So a lot more countries are actually seeing an increase in phishing attack. It used to be focused on English. Now they're doing it in Spanish, Vietnamese, because it's easier for them to translate, giving them a greater threat capability, he said. Paul Jevtivik, the Chief Financial Crime, Risk and Group Money Launching Officer at the National Australia Bank, said even when the victim of a phishing attack suspected they were under attack, cybercriminals were using AI tools to stay a step ahead of them. And company directors could be in breach of their duties 
yet companies fail to adequately deal with cyber attacks, warns Australian Securities Investments Commission Chairman Joe Longo. This could include the directors of high-profile companies such as Medibank, Optus and consumer finance group Latitude, which have been the subject of high-profile and damaging cyber attacks over the past year. If boards do not give cyber security and cyber resilience sufficient priority, this creates a foreseeable risk of harm to the company and thereby exposes the directors to potential enforcement action by ASIC, based on the directors not acting with reasonable care and diligence, Longo said. ASIC's research has shown there is often a disconnect between a company's board oversight of cyber risk management reporting on this topic to their board, as well as the identification and assessment of risks and how controls are implemented. Longo said this disconnect must be addressed if the board wanted it to meet its legal obligations. The Office of the Australian Information Commissioner has opened the investigation into the cyber attacks on Optus, Medibank and Latitude, which could open the door for ASIC to take legal action. This is on top of potential class action lawsuits over the cyber attacks. And sentiment among manufacturers has plunged to its lowest level since the global financial crisis as a new survey shows the industry is shedding workers in response to falling consumer demand. A net 35% of manufacturers expect the general business situation to worsen over the next six months, according to the ACCI Westpac Industrial Trends Survey for the September quarter. The figure was the worst since the GFC as pessimism takes hold across the manufacturing sector. The release of the survey is the latest sign that high interest rates are having a dampening effect on the economy and causing the mood among consumers and businesses to sour. While employment continues to grow nationally, the survey shows a net 5% more manufacturers reduced their headcount than raised their headcount in three months to September. Meanwhile, new orders were flat for the second quarter in a row as consumer demand softened. And the number of job ads measured by online employment services company Seek fell 1.8% for August after a slight rise in July, with the nation's labour market still tight but softening as the weight of a year of interest rate hikes takes its toll on hiring intentions for employers. The volume of job ads has fallen by a fifth for a year to August. At the same time, more workers are looking at job ads as the population increases thanks to migration. It sheds a lot on the moderating growth now evident in the economy, although some sectors remain strong, such as education and training, while retailers gearing up for the glooming Christmas rush help give a bump to retail and consumer product job ads. Seek Employment Report found that job ads were 19.7% higher than August 2019. Applications per job ad increased for the sixth consecutive month, rising 6.5% from the month prior and are now more than double the year prior. However, there were signs within the jobs data of a slowing employment market. And Yellow Brick Road Chairman Mark Burris says the misunderstood nature of the mortgage broking business is to blame for investors steering clear of his company and going private is the only way to fix the problem. Mr Burris, best known for his work on reality business show Celebrity Apprentice Australia, also defended his remuneration, more than $1 million per year, despite Yellow Brick Road's market capitalisation of just $19 million, saying he could earn twice that amount of money elsewhere. Yellow Brick Road on Monday detailed its reasons for pursuing a delisting from the ASX will offer existing investors the chance to buy shares at 5.5 cents if they want to remain invested in the unlisted company. A delisting would would cap over a decade on the ASX for Yellow Brick Road, which was floated in 2011 at 40 cents a share via backdoor listing. It last traded at 5 cents. Around 62% of issued Yellow Brick Road capital is held by four shareholders, and this is distorting liquidity and leading to a share price undervalued by as much as 56.7%, the company said in a statement. Mr Burris said the depressed share price was because there was a lack of understanding of its commission structure and liquidity challenges. While the company's made cash profits, accounting adjustments means it has been 
writing down its operating profit, he said. Mr. Burris said the delisting is the outcome of seven months of planning, and Yellow Brick Road will use the delisting to be ready for the future. He declined to comment on what projects are in the pipeline. The delisting proposal will be considered at an extraordinary meeting in late October, with an expected delisting to occur the following month. The ranks of the established affluent in Australia swelled by 45,000 people last year on the back of strong market returns and property valuation. Investment trends, a research consultancy, classifies people with more than $1 million excluding the family home and superannuation, but including self-managed superannuation fund assets as high net worth. Those with between $2.5 million and $10 million are the established affluent. They are better off than the emerging affluent with between $1 million and $2.5 million, but have not yet reached the heights of the ultra-high net worth category, which takes in people who have $10 million plus. Overall, the number of affluent investors increased over the last year to 635,000 investors, and they hold $3 trillion in investment investable assets. The 2023 Investment Trends Premium High Net Worth Investor Report says, The graduation of 45,000 individuals into established affluent was a notable change. Growth in the established affluent category was larger than other categories because people with this level of wealth tend, tend to have heavy exposures to equities and property, which have performed well last year. And almost every person in New South Wales and Queensland was hit with a natural disaster in the past 12 months, researchers revealed, prompting calls for all levels of government to sink more money into safeguarding important infrastructure and consider moving residents to safer areas. Ahead of what is expected to be a dangerous bushfire season, the research by KPMG urban economist Terry Rawnsley shows the number of people affected by natural disasters is growing, with the number of communities directly affected also increasing. Rawnsley found 18.1 million people were affected by flood through 2022, the largest direct impact of any natural disaster going back to the mid-2010s. Of that number, 7.6 million, or 93% of all people in New South Wales, had their daily lives changed in some way by flooding. In Queensland, about 97% of residents, or 5.3 million, were affected, while in Victoria, almost 4.6 million, for a national total of almost 18 million, making it the second largest natural disaster in Rawnsley's records. About 70% lived in a local government area affected by floods or storms. Last year's heavy rains meant the only jurisdiction with many people hit by bushfire was South Australia, just 8,000. This compares with 8.3 million affected by fires in during 2019. Rawnsley said the numbers showed the growing importance of governments to protect the critical infrastructure from the impact of climate change. According to the Insurance Council of Australia, the 2021-22 financial year was the worst in history for natural disaster-related insurance costs at $7.3 billion. The flooding of southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales alone could cost more than $6 billion. Last financial year, the insurance bill from natural disasters dropped sharply to $1.6 billion. The worst single event were the floods of October through to December that caused the $736 million dollar insurance losses across Tasmania, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia. The Bureau of Meteorology has yet to declare an El Nino event, which is normally associated with drought conditions. But last week, it warned that most of the southern and eastern Australia could face warmer and drier than average conditions between October and December. It also noted global warming continued to influence the climate. Global sea surface temperatures set records this year, with July and August the hottest and second hottest months ever. Rawnsley said reducing exposure and vulnerability of communities to natural disasters had to be considered. This could include redirecting population growth away from high-risk areas through stronger land-use planning, 
Better building codes and the construction of protective infrastructure, such as strengthening bridges, also had to be on the agenda for all government. Rawnsley said incorporating adaption measures into retrofitting and infrastructure replacement will also help prevent long-term disruptions to communities. And the Transport Workers Union says Qantas Chairman Richard Goida will have nowhere to hide at the upcoming Senate inquiry into the National Category, claiming the Qantas board has been in denial about the airline's decision to sack workers, but being both illegal and damaging to safety-branded customers. The chairman and chief executives of major airlines including former Qantas boss Alan Joyce, have been called before the inquiry from September 26, but the committee is still negotiating the exact timing and format of their appearances. Qantas chief legal counsel Andrew Finch said told the TWU that the board was satisfied the airline's management, led at the time by Miss Joyce, had appropriately managed the risk when it outsourced nearly 1,700 workers after the airline was grounded in 2020 following the outbreak of the pandemic. The union says the board subsequently ignored three further attempts from the TWU to discuss its growing concerns about a sharp deterioration in safety standards, which had linked to the decline in Qantas' public reputation following the High Court decision last Wednesday, which, which found Qantas' sacking of 1,683 ground staff was illegal. And Qantas chairman Richard Goida faces a fresh battle to keep his job after a leading industry group called for his dismissal over a board decision to engage Boston Consulting Group to rest the airline's relationship with customers. And a letter was sent to Mr Goida by the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association on September 13, saying the decision by the Qantas board to engage the consultant showed direct did not understand the mistakes that had left the airline's reputation in tatters and led to staff being abused for simply wearing the uniform. The letter, copied to new Chief Executive Vanessa Hudson, ratchets up pressure on the embattled airline amid a surge in air unrest from customers and staff after the company posted bumper profits. Ms Hudson, who was sent to the job at Qantas two months ahead of schedule with a sudden departure of Alan Joyce, had promised to restore the airline's reputation with customers and staff. But in a sign that tensions remain near boiling point, Steve Pervina's Central Secretary of the engineering group said Qantas' decision to use BCG to undertake a key review hinted that not much had changed. Engaging BCG says the board neither hears nor understands the problem. The situation is so bad that Qantas employers are being abused on the street for simply wearing a Qantas uniform. If Qantas is determined to fix problems and deliver consistency, you cannot engage BCG or other consultations. The bean caters are the problem, Mr Burvinus wrote in a letter to the Qantas chairman. The director of Qantas must change. If the Qantas board of directors do not understand the problem, there must be a boardroom change. If Qantas engages Boston Consulting Group, we call on you to resign your position as Qantas chairman without delay. The revelation of the unrest will fuel pressure on Mr Goida, who is battling to save his job, and adds to the array of problems facing its newly appointed chief executive. The High Court last week upheld two previous rulings of the airline's outsourcing of 1,700 workers during the COVID pandemic was unlawful, leaving Qantas staring at a $200 million fine and pressure for an extensive board clean-out. The rule-out came just two weeks after the Australian Competition Consumer Commission launched legal action against Qantas over allegations it sold tickets in 2022 for flights that had already been cancelled. ACCC Chair Gina Cascotlieb has said that the watchdog is pursuing penalties of more than $250 million for the ghost flight tickets. Qantas is already facing a class action over flight credits, as well as criminal prosecution in New South Wales by the state's safety regulator for allegedly standing down a health and safety representative during the pandemic. Qantas denies the ACCC allegations and has rejected suggestions it acted illegally when it stood down the health and safety representative. Public anger towards Qantas remains high as travel credits, high affairs and extravagant executive bonuses weigh on sentiment towards a once beloved carrier. In August, Qantas posted a record $2.47 billion profit, which Mr Joyce defended as in the national interest. Anger towards Qantas is also a political headache for the federal Labor government, which has had to repeatedly defend its decision to reject a request from Qatar for an additional 21 flights beyond the 28 slots a week it currently operates under existing bilateral air rights. 
the company has struggled to justify the decision, which opposition leader Peter Dutton saying Labor was running a protection racket for Qantas. Mr Joyce has admitted lobbying the government against Qatar's request. He said the international market lacked capacity, but allowing Qatar to nearly double the slots would distort the market. And the average chief executive pay at some of Australia's biggest companies is more than $5 million, and dozens received double-digit salary increases, according to annual reports and other information released during the recent profit reporting season. Remuneration figures from more than 70 big companies showed that most CEOs got pay rises far exceeding inflation rates and the pace at which wages for full-time Australian workers and other employers increased over the 2023 financial year. About 30 CEOs received double-digit percentage pay increases for the year at a time when interest rates and inflation remained stubbornly high. 26 CEOs received total statutory earnings of more than $5 million, comprising base salaries, short and long-term incentives and bonuses and other income. There were five CEOs who had pay packets of more than $10 million, while another 19 earned more than $5 million. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to John Pilcher, the CEO of Neurum Pharmaceuticals, the $1.5 billion ASX-listed biotech companies. And AM Shane Oliver will give his views about the profit reporting season. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. If you like Talking Business, please leave us a review with Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.